Well, good morning, Crossway, and welcome back to our little video world here. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that we have, even in this way, to gather around God's Word again this morning. We need God's Word. We, we live by it, we grow by it, and so we need to feed on it. And so I'm eager for us to do that once again uh, this morning. This has been an interesting week, right? We've heard a lot of things going on in news, local and statewide, and we have uh, done our best, and we're going to continue to do our best to kind of pay attention to what's going on so that we can serve you and us as a church. Um, but for now, um, I want all of our attention to be fully on God's Word as we open this great book together and see what God has for us this morning. Um, but before I do that, um, before I ask you to take your Bibles, uh, let me just speak a word uh, once again, uh, especially to the children. Uh, children, I kind of like this uh, new tradition that we've established of spending a little time on Sunday mornings just doing something especially for you. Um, last week, you got to hear a word of greeting and a little bit of encouragement from your teachers, which I just thought was very sweet. But this week, I wanted to share with you from another book that is very special to me, just like that book that I shared with you uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, if you were very observant, I mean really observant, you might have noticed three weeks ago this picture on my desk. Um, this is a picture that my son, Graham, drew for me uh, when he was about 10 years old. And he took this, he copied this from um, this book that I want to share with you. The book is called Dangerous Journey. And this picture is my very favorite picture from that book. And Graham gave this to me because he knew it meant so much to me. And so I wanted to share with you a little bit uh, from this book. It's called The Dangerous Journey, and it's about a guy named Christian. And you can see, even from the cover here, that Christian's got a huge burden on his back. In fact, at the beginning of this story, all through the beginning, every time we see Christian, Christian's got this burden on his back. Here he is with his family. And he's got this huge thing on his back. And you'll notice that Christian is reading a book. Um, that's the Bible. And the Bible is God speaking to him, telling him that, in fact, he is a sinner. Um, he does carry a great burden of guilt. And as Christian is reading this book, he feels more and more the weight of that burden. In fact, everywhere he goes, no matter where Christian goes, that burden goes with him, and here's Christian out in the field. And you'll notice the burden seems a little bigger. He's still reading his Bible. He feels the truth of what God is saying to him, but he doesn't like this burden on his back, and he wonders, what can he do to get rid of this burden? Well, one day while he's out walking, he meets this guy, um, this old man, and his name, you see him here? His name is Evangelist. An evangelist says to him, Christian, there's something that can be done about that burden. An evangelist says to Christian, do you see? Look way off in the distance there. Do you see that gate? And Christian can't quite see it. And so evangelist says, beyond the gate, there's a light, a bright light. 
keep your eye on that light and keep heading in that direction. And so off Christian goes. And on his journey, he meets all kinds of people and gets into all kinds of situations. But eventually, he comes to this path. Now, don't look over here yet. Don't look there yet. Look right here. And you'll see Christian on this path. And if you look closely, you can see he's running because he senses he's getting closer. And sure enough, in this picture, Christian comes to the cross. And I don't know if you can see there, but you see what's happening to that burden? It's coming off. It's falling off his back. When Christian comes to the cross, that burden of guilt is gone. In fact, let me just read what it says here. Christian kept feeling behind his back. He couldn't believe it, for it was very surprising to him that the simple act of gazing at the cross had set him free, and his burden of guilt was gone. So Christian gave three leaps of joy. Do you see the picture now? His burden is gone, and he's all clean. In fact, a shining one, an angel came to him, and the angel said to him, Listen to these words. Your soul is now swept clean of sin. That is one of my favorite stories. It's called A Dangerous Journey. You might have that book in your home. And if you do, maybe mom and dad can read that to you tonight. I've just read a little part of the story to you. If you don't have that book, you can pick it up sometime. I trust that you'll enjoy that, children. But now, let me ask all of us to take our Bibles and to turn would you please, uh, in your Bible there, turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John chapter 13. Now, I need to tell you, um, there is something different going on here in John 13. With almost all of the other sayings that we've seen uh, so far, uh, Jesus is speaking out in the open. He's speaking to gatherings of people, to large crowds. We, we could say Jesus is speaking large. But here, we find Jesus in a very small setting. He's, he's in a small upper room with just his disciples, 13 men, Jesus and his 12 disciples. And Jesus is speaking to them these, these very meaningful words of life. But these words that Jesus speaks aren't just for them. They're for us as well. So let's read. I'm going to read the first 17 verses of John chapter 13. You follow along there in your Bibles. This is God's word. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, 
What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, usually when we think about this passage, we focus right in on that foot washing and the example that Jesus is giving to us here, which is right. I mean, it's pretty clear that Jesus means what he's doing here to be an example. And we'll get to that this morning. But there is a much bigger, much deeper level of meaning going on here than just this example of humbly serving one another. Something much bigger that Jesus is wanting his disciples and us to get. And really, it's important that we get that bigger, deeper meaning first. So let's go right to the deeper level of meaning here. And I think the first thing to notice is what we read in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... Right before the great feast of the Passover, which the people of Israel would observe every year to commemorate that time centuries earlier when they were back in Egypt, that God instructed them, each house, each family, to take a little lamb and to kill that lamb and to take some of the blood from that lamb and to put it on the, the doorposts and the lintel piece above the door of their house. And by so doing to, in a sense, cover their house by that blood. And God's judgment, as it was coming against the people of Israel for their rebellion and their idolatry and their persistence in sin against God, God's judgment would pass over the houses of the Israelites based on the covering of that blood. And the Israelites didn't know. They did not know, but God had instituted that Passover feast to foreshadow what is about to happen here with Jesus. In fact, the very next day. Remember, remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus way back at the beginning of the gospel. He pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Israelites didn't know what Passover was pointing to, but Jesus knew. 
And this feast, the Passover feast, is the setting for what Jesus knows is about to happen. He knows what's coming. Look at verse 1 again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and he says the same thing in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. What, what does that mean? that God had given all things into Jesus' hands. It means that God's plan of salvation rests completely now on what Jesus will willingly do. God's purpose to save, God's purpose to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation is completely in Jesus' hands. You know, in just a few hours from this moment, Jesus is he's going to be on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup, which is in my hands, that you're asking me to drink, let this pass from me. Jesus is beginning to feel the, the, the crushing weight and the horror of all of that accumulated sin being placed on him. He's beginning to feel the effect of the Father turning his face away from him. And so he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup that I'm holding in my hands that you're asking me to drink, let it pass. But remember how Jesus ends that prayer? Not my will, but thine be done. God has put his will, his plan in Jesus' hands, and Jesus sees what, what's coming, both in verse 1 and in verse 3, we see that. And right in between those two verses, in verse 2, we read that Judas's heart had already been captured by Satan. Look there at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So that's, that's the large canvas. That's the big canvas that Jesus is painting on, knowing all of this that is about to happen and what it's for and what it will accomplish. Knowing all of that, Jesus does something that is, I mean, quite honestly, just astonishing. Good verse 4. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. It's the very same language that Jesus uses back in chapter 10 when he talks about the good shepherd laying aside his life. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I mean, basically, Jesus is here adopting the outfit of a house servant. And he's doing this very lowly task, washing the feet of the guest. Peers didn't even do this for one another, much less masters for disciples, teachers for students. I, I read this past week a footnote uh, in a book that I was reading. Let me just quote this for you. Here's what I read. There is no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman literature of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. There is no recorded instance in all of Jewish or Greco-Roman history of a superior washing the feet of inferiors, except right here in John chapter 13. 
So Jesus, he takes off his cloak, he wraps this towel around his waist, and he begins to systematically wash his disciples' feet, and he, and he comes to Peter. Uh, maybe he started with Peter, we don't know. Maybe he started there to make his point, but he comes to Peter, and Peter, with, with characteristic outspokenness, says, verse 6, Lord, wh what are you doing? You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus, verse 7, says, what I'm doing, you do not understand right now, but you will understand afterwards, which, which is pointing to something bigger, right? I mean, certainly Peter understands a foot washing, and it certainly registers to him the shock of having his master wash his feet. Peter understands that. So clearly when Jesus says, what I'm doing right now, you don't understand, he's talking about something much bigger that they'll understand later. But Peter insists, verse 8, he says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. What does Jesus mean by that? What does he mean when he says, if I do not wash you, Peter, if I don't wash you, Mike, you fill in your name. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Well, what he means is that if I don't wash you, you won't receive the life that I have come to give. All of this that I've been saying to you, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, I came to give you life. I came that where I am, you may be also. Um, that is at least a part of, in fact, I think a big part of what Jesus has in his mind when he says, if I don't wash you, you will have no share in me. And so once again, you know, with characteristic zeal, Peter speaks, verse 9, he says, Lord, if that's the case, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head. And it's right here that Jesus speaks these meaningful precious words. It's right here that Jesus speak these, speaks these, these wonderful words of life. This is the key verse in this passage. Verse 10. Look there with me. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. We'll get to that in a minute. But look at this. But is completely clean completely clean. Do you remember what that shining one, that angel said to Christian after the burden of his sin fell off of his back? He said, your sin, your, your soul is now swept clean of sin. Completely clean. John said it in another place, the blood of Jesus purifies us, cleanses us from all sin completely clean. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That, that is the, the deeper meaning. This foot washing is symbolically anticipating that great cleansing sacrifice that Jesus is about to make at the cross. I want to say that again because it's really important. This foot washing here is a symbolic anticipation of the great cleansing sacrifice that is about to happen at the cross. That's what, 
That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 7, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterward you will understand. Look at verse 10 with me again. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. What is he speaking about there? Well, he is speaking about an act of God by which a person's guilt is washed away. He is clean before God. She is clean before God. Or to use the language of the book of Romans, the person is justified. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, since we have been justified, we now have peace with God. We're completely clean. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So that happens when you, by faith, put your trust in Christ and the work that he did on the cross, and you receive this free gift. You, you, you pass from death to life. You, you go from lost to found. You go from covered with sin, burdened with guilt, to completely clean. And it's a once-for-all act. People who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work, uh, they're certainly going to need to be kind of forgiven for subsequent sins. We'll get to that in just a minute. But this fundamental cleansing need never be repeated again. It is a definitive act. The one who has bathed, Jesus says, is completely clean. Friends, I want to encourage you to hang on to those words in John 13, 10. Treasure those words. If you are in Christ, you are completely clean. And it's God's love that made it happen. In the end, there is no other explanation for the cross than the love of God. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God in Christ. I think that helps us to understand what John said back up in verse 1. Remember this? Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What John means by that is that he loved him to the greatest extent, the fullest extent. So we come to Christ and we are washed by Christ. Friends, there is literally no sin which Jesus cannot wash away. There is no guilt that Jesus cannot forgive. Even sins that we would be ashamed to admit to anyone the blood of Jesus purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. We are completely clean. So Jesus says at the end of verse 10, and you are clean. That word you is plural. He's speaking to all of the disciples. You are clean. You've been washed. You've been bathed. But not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Friends, there is a warning for us here. Um, Jesus washed Judas's feet that night. 
It's not as if, you know, Jesus was going around there and skipped over Judas. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like for Judas having Jesus wash his feet externally, knowing that he had not had Jesus wash his heart? There is a warning for us here. People can go through the external motions. We can go to church. We can take communion. We can even get baptized. But it's possible for us to have all of that external and not have the cleansing of our hearts and our conscience and our lives by the blood of Christ. But now, what about this need to have our feet washed? Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. What is, what is Jesus saying there? Well, very simply, Jesus is saying that even if you've been cleansed uh, in the course of our daily Christian lives, we can still sin. And so we are in need of regular cleanups, if you will. So this, this thing about washing our feet represents our daily need to confess our sin and, and, and get cleaned from that. But it's very different from that once for all cleansing. This great work of Christ on our behalf, accomplished in his death, this is the great meaning of what's going on here in John chapter 13. That's what Jesus says they will understand in a little bit. And that's what we, being on this side of the cross, can now fully understand in Christ, in Christ in Christ I have been made completely clean. But now, Jesus does take this larger truth and he applies it on a more basic, everyday, ordinary level. That's what he's doing in verse 12 and following. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? on this basic level. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. These acts of humble service, these acts of giving care to those who are in need, these acts of meeting real needs, even if it's at cost to us of our time and our reputations and our comfort. But let's be very clear. This ordinary service, serving of one another, is only possible because of the extraordinary service that Jesus provided for us in his death. That's the foundation that we stand on. True Christian service, true Christian acts of humility are their gospel fueled. Apart from that foundation, you know, washing other people's feet, doing nice things for other people. I mean, it's just nice, which is, I mean, it's better than being mean, but uh, it's not, it's not gospel weighted. It doesn't have a gospel fragrance about it. It doesn't have a gospel effect to it. There's, it just doesn't have the, the, the aroma and the feel and the presence of Jesus to it. 
Jesus' great giving of himself is what gives rise to truly Christian giving of ourselves to others in humble acts of service. True Christian service is possible only because of what Jesus did for us. And maybe this is just another way of saying the same thing. Our ordinary service reflects Jesus' extraordinary service, and therefore it points to him. Look down just a little further in chapter 13, uh, verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our love reflects his love and it points to him. So what words of life did Jesus speak here? to his disciples and to us. Here they are. You can be washed completely clean. And you are clean if you are in Christ, if Christ has washed you. That should speak so deeply to our souls. And out from that, having been washed clean, out from that should flow, in fact, will flow acts of love and humility that point others to Jesus so that they too might experience complete cleansing as well. Praise God for his kindness to us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for these Precious words, amazing words. Thank you for opening our eyes and our ears to hear what you've said to us. And Father, this very precious truth, John 13, 10, that when we have been washed by Christ, we are completely clean. Lord, I pray that as Christians, we would live in the good of that and in the truth of that, and we would not let Satan whisper anything other than that in our ears. God, give us strength to trust you and to believe what you have said. And then, Father, as we do, stumble into sin as we will. Lord, let us run to you and, and have you apply to us again this forgiveness that you've purchased for us on the cross. We thank you so much for this gift. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, bless you, Crossway. We'll be in touch again this week. In fact, look for that letter once again on Wednesday. And uh, we will no doubt in that letter be giving you updates um, on the things that are developing uh, during the course of, of this past week and this coming week. We're going to do our very best to keep you current on our thinking. And we do, as we've said so many times, we do so look forward to our being together again. Until then, God bless you. Bye-bye.